Well, um, I don't know how to start today, um, quite honestly, with bad news again. Um, but in case you didn't know or you haven't heard, the Razorbacks lost yesterday um, to Toledo or Toledo. I don't even have to pronounce it. Who was that that they lost to? Um, listen, I've learned that when you speak or when you teach, that the most important words that you say are usually the words at the beginning and usually the words at the end. And so really the first words that I want you to hear from me and also from my family today is that we absolutely love our church. This week has been like no other that I know of. And maybe for you too. And I didn't really know what to expect, but what happened was an overflow of text messages and emails and private Facebook messages of grace and truth and love. And sometimes there might have been even a tone of disappointment or anger hidden in that, but even in that was truth spoken and love and can I just say that that in its totality of everything is the church. I've never been in a situation in my life of 25 years of ministry, and I can honestly say this. I've led the church, been frustrated with the church, have friends in the church, but never in 25 years have I been on the side where I needed the church, where my family needed the church. And so I want you to hear us say that we love you. I'm more in love with the church today than I've ever been. I got a text just to give you an example um, from someone who reached out to me and said, I wanted to reach out and say that I love you and Mike. I wish I could give you a big honking hug. Only in Arkansas, people, does that translate. I re- replied back, thank you. This is from Stacy Ash, by the way. I just threw your honk and hug under the bus. So I replied back, thank you. I feel like I can't breathe. To which she responded, know that there is an army holding you both up in prayer and we will be your spiritual lungs. And so that's what it's all about. So let me tell you how I came to be speaking here today because it might actually not be what you think. So back in July, Mike took one week to get away with God and kind of lean in and listen where he might be leading and directing our church. And so he went away to a seminary library. And I just want to make it clear to you and to God, if I want to get alone with God, God, don't take me to the library. I prefer the mountain or the beach, okay? Not a library, but that's where he went, okay? And so he goes to get alone with God and he comes back and he's telling me about where he thinks that God might be leading us. And one of the the message series was going to be called Love and Liberate, where we as a church would revisit the love that Christ has for us and the freedom that we have been given to walk in freedom with him so that we can go out and love other people, share that gospel with them so they too could find freedom and liberation. 
So he came back and he said, so what I want you to do is, if you're willing, would you, and this is months ago, would you be willing to speak on September 13th? I said, sure. And so I added it to my calendar. He even gave me the, a passage, said, hey, would you, you want this passage or you want to pick one of your own? And I said, you know what, I think I'm going to pick one of my own, but thank you very much. And, um, and so it was calendared and that's how it came to be. So last Sunday, if you were here, you heard Mike confess from the stage that he bypassed the Holy Spirit's prompting, that he entered into a place not to participate in evil, but gave all appearance of evil. And some of you got that in the letter who weren't here. Some of you heard it from each other. And some of you are visiting today and you're thinking with both question marks, um, what? I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to subtract from it. I'm not even going to rehash it here. But I knew that I was supposed to be speaking this Sunday. Mike and I talked it over. The deacons talked it over. We were trying to figure out, is this the best thing for Lori to talk today? Because some of you are thinking, are you crazy? And we all decided that, you know what? The message that God had laid on my heart weeks ago, the passage that we're about to jump in and read, didn't come to me last Sunday. God gave it to me weeks prior to this. And I will tell you this. I will tell you the same thing that I told my husband yesterday. I said, you know what, Mike? Ironically, last Sunday was supposed to begin this series called Love and Liberate. And you know what? I think God did not detour from his plan. I think that last week began something that we've not ever experienced, a method we've not ever gone through, a way that God might want to speak to us about love and liberation that might not come from Mike's mouth, but I am sorry, honey, it might be modeled by your life. And I believe that God is still speaking to us today, this message of teaching us about his love and liberation, about the love that we have for each other and the grace and the mercy that we have with each other. I want to do something today. Why don't you go ahead and turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 40. And that's going to be our text. Or find it on your phone, whichever you use. Forgive me for moving my stool around for a minute. This thing is really wiggly. Um, so I may have to keep adjusting. Several hundred years before Christ, Israel had been divided and scattered. They were in ruins. The temple where they had worshipped had been destroyed. It was crumbled. And the king at that time, the leader of Persia, allowed them to return back. And when they did, they uncovered the book of the law that they had completely forgotten about. Years had gone by. And when this book was uncovered and it was read, the scriptures say this in Nehemiah. It said that the people for a quarter of the day stood as Ezra read God's word to them. A quarter of the day. That's six hours of listening to God's word being read. And so because I feel like, and I'll explain more, that we are in a new day, that the trajectory of Grace Point has shifted and even for the good. I'm going to ask this morning that just symbolically, that together as a body, we demonstrate with our posture. And so I'm going to ask that as we read the first few verses of our text, I'm going to ask you guys to stand as we read. Reading verse 1 through 3, it says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, 
and he inclined to me and he heard my cry and he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet up on a rock making my steps secure he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our god many will see and fear and put their trust in him you can be seated so the scenery that we're looking at this morning is a pit okay i don't even like using the word pit i was so nervous this morning my pits were sweating and i ran out of deodorant today of all days my husband doesn't know this yet but i used his speed stick (laughs) not a good solution I don't even like using the word pit, but it's the scenery that we're talking about today. I want us to get a mental picture. I want us to get some vocabulary as a foundation of this, of of what this place is. I'm not talking a pit that I'm talking about that we're just having a bad day. I'm not talking about that you made a bad grade on that chemistry test. Rather, I'm talking about the place that you find yourself in when you get the bad result from the cancer test. I'm talking about the pit that you fall in because of the humility of exposed sin. I'm talking about the loss of something or someone that you loved. There are three kinds of people in this room. There are those of you who have been in a pit before, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are those of you who are in a pit right now, and you're crying out, Dear God, get me out of this. And then there are those of you who may not be in a pit, but you will be in a pit, because at some point in our life, we will have the pit stamped in the passport along our life's journey. And I don't know where you fall in that today the thing is about this pit is this pit might be something that you carved out because of your own sin and you fell into it it might be a pit that you fell into because of somebody else's sin it might be a pit that was a slow gradual incline you saw it coming you tried to avoid it but it was inevitable you are now in it it could have been a pit that you're just walking on the edge and without warning you plummet to the bottom it knocks you out of breath you emotionally hyperventilate you are mentally dizzy you are spiritually dehydrating and brokenness steals your breath that's the place that i'm talking about and maybe we should have given out gift bags of antidepressants when we came in today because i can kind of feel the atmosphere and that's not my intention but here is the truth is i can look out in this crowd And I know so many of your stories that you have told me of your own brokenness, of your own pits, of your own pain. I know about your husband's adultery. I know about the child that you suddenly lost. I know about your sexual abuse and the wife who slowly died of cancer. I know about the homosexual choice that your child made and that you were pregnant before your marriage. I know about your divorce and your second one and your third. I know that you have an had an abortion. I know you have an anger problem that you wear on the outside, but you have a hard time admitting on the inside. I know about the chains that keep you locked in the bondage of people pleasing, that keep you afraid and insecure everywhere you go. I know that you've looked on that website and I know that you have that addiction. I know that you are broken. Me too. Us too. All of us are 
broken people. And there's one thing that all of us think whenever we find ourselves in this place, we think, can we have a do-over? If only I could just like go back and change that decision. If I could just have one more moment. Only if I hadn't said that word. Only if we hadn't signed those papers. Only if I hadn't sent my child there. And we wish that we could have a do-over. Two years ago, my family and I went to Silver, Do- Silver, Silver Dollar City. We call it Still Your Dollar City, so that's why I have a hard time getting it out of my mouth sometimes. Silver Dollar City. And we had ridden one ride, and our second ride was going to be the log ride. And we were kind of like, do we want to ride it? It's kind of cold. I don't know. You know what? Come on, boys. Let's go. And so it was me and the guys, okay? Just me and my two boys. And there's not very many people there. And so we get in this log ride, and we don't fill up the entire log. So they scoot us all the way back to the back, and I'm the one that's sitting in front, and so here we go, and I really don't want to get wet, but you know how the log ride is. You cruise around, and you go up the hill, and then when you plunge down, when we hit the water, I don't know what happened, but the trajectory was just right, and there's about three feet in front of me in the front of the log so that when we hit the water, I went flying out of my seat head first and slammed my head into the front of the log. Uh, I know, that's what I said too when I hit the front of the log. And my boys are laughing. They're going, Mom, you're not supposed to stand up on the ride. And I'm thinking just, I'm humiliated. People are like looking over, seeing me crawling out of the front. I'm thinking, just get me out of here. Go to my husband. I'm in tears, but I'm laughing because it's the dumbest thing that you could possibly do. And then I begin to realize I'm really hurt. And so I lay on the park bench. We end up at the first aid station. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Okay, just give me a couple of weeks. We'll get by this. I end up having to get an MRI and find out that I have a herniated disc. And the doctor says, we recommend surgery. Now, you've got to understand here for a minute. I'm embarrassed, people. When people were asking me, how come you can't move your neck? How come you can't move your arm? I had to tell them it was the log ride. It's like a notch above the teacups at Disneyland. So when the doctor says, Lori, you, you need surgery, listen, I'm the kind of person I would strap on a parachute, I would jump 13,000 feet in the air out of a plane, and I would love it all the way down. And when I got done, I would say, that was awesome. But you put me in a room and people in white coats walk in with an instrument about this long that has a three-centimeter needle on the end of it, and I see it, the walls begin to enclose. I start getting hot. The room starts spinning, and I will either throw up or pass out one of the two. So when he said, okay, you're going to need surgery. We're going to need to go in through the front of your neck, move over your esophagus and your vocal cord. We're going to put in a metal plate and some screws in your neck. I just had one word, uh, no. And I did everything possible to avoid it. Whole year goes by, rehab, chiropractic. I took Ligoplex, Nitroplex, whatever the organic people at the, would sell me that might make me better. One year after the accident, I woke up one day and I couldn't move my head. I felt like it weighed 50 pounds. I felt like walking, I was walking through concrete. Had another MRI, took it to the doctor. By the time I got home, they had called. The nurse said, the doctor wants to see you immediately and you need surgery. We have you scheduled tomorrow. In tears, Mike and I go to the doctor. Next day, I'm having surgery. And Monty Moore, who is an anesthesiologist, was in the surgery room, which is a terrible thing to know that somebody in a church has seen you in a hospital gown, but hey. And I wake up in recovery and I have a neck brace on like this. And I wake up and I'm just kind of coming to and I'm and I said, get this thing off of me. And Monty said, Lori, that's your neck brace. It has to stay on. And I'm sorry if this offends you, but I only had two words to describe the situation. I just said, this sucks. 
And for the next weeks, learning to sit up, all I could think was one thing. If only I'd put my feet where they're supposed to have been. If only my hands, if I'd kept them on the rail. If only I wouldn't have cared if I'd gotten wet. If only we didn't get on the ride. If only, if only, if only, for one split second, could it change the trajectory of everything for two years of my life. And when we're in the pit, this is what happens and this is what we go through. So I want to look at this text and I want to ask this one question. What happens in the pit? And here's the first thing that happens. Is you confess and you cry out until you have no words left. And you know what I'm talking about. Because it gets to that point, Mike and I have been there this week, praying at times together with great words, and other times praying together, and these were our words. God, we have no more words. In the same chapter, verse 12, this is what David says, the psalmist says, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. I'm surrounded. I am in deep sin. And my heart fails me. I looked up. If we have more sin than the hairs on our head, I had to look up how many hairs do people have on their head, and I realized that that varies. Take it personal if you want. Most people have about 100,000 hairs on their head. And so this week, well, yeah, you know, the confession and everything, and Mike and I have been going through that. I had to get before God. And I had to go, okay, wait, God. Wait a minute here. I realize and I recognize that my own confession are pretty much just dainty prayers of my little morsels of sin. And God began to deal with my own heart and my own sin in my own life. There was something that happened last week that I did not expect. I didn't see it coming. And after last Sunday morning began a ripple of people coming to us, of you guys going to each other and confessing your own faults and your own sins and so many different kinds. And I will be very honest with you and very bold and very blunt with you, and I will tell you this right now, that I am praying to God it continues. I pray that it was the beginning of love and liberation. I believe that confession and contrition or the introduction to God's movement. I've been reading a book, I think I told you that last week, called The Power of a Praying, The Power of Prayer and a Belie- a Praying in a Believer's Life. And I've been praying for the last couple of months, God, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. So I was reading this book this last week, and this is the quote that I came to. It says this, I believe that the Lord is about to bless those who personally are given a deep sense of sin. And certainly the church that is willing to make confession for its own sinfulness and unworthiness is on the eve of a visitation of love. The very ingredients we want to avoid, the deep sense of sin in church making confession 
are the very ingredients, perhaps, for God doing a new work in individual lives and for God's movement and activity to be poured out upon us. Here's the second thing that happens in a pit after you've confessed is you can't cry out anymore, is you begin to exercise faith muscles that you may not have ever used before. I wanted to get, okay, so what does it look like in a pit? I mean, what does that visually look, look like? Turn to Jeremiah, or we'll just throw it up on the screen real quickly. Jeremiah 38, 6. Jeremiah is a prophet who has been telling the people, listen, you better get right with God. But the people didn't like it. So they have him arrested, and it says this about Jeremiah. So they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. I have this picture of being immobile, of being paralyzed, where really you cannot physically move. So the only muscles that you can exercise are the faith muscles within you, where pain becomes the tutor of your soul. Let me ask you this question. When you're in a pit, where is the light? Up, right? If you're flooded in a well of water, where is the oxygen? It's up, right? And so we begin to turn our focus and we begin to exercise muscles upward that we may not have used before. But here's the thing about this place. When, when we are here in this pit, there's going to be three things that we're going to be tempted to do. One, you're going to be tempted to think that God is nowhere near, that you're completely alone. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite chapters, and they ask a question, David does. He says, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, everything's great and, ha- and, and going well, you're there. If I make my bed in shoal, about down in the deeps, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and guide me. Now I want you to think about that for a second because it's very poetic. If I take the wings of the dawn, in other words, if I travel at the speed of light, think about it when the sun comes up, light travels 186,000 miles per second. Do this, snap. The time it took you to snap, light traveled around the earth seven times. So let's just say you're moving along in your life like Mike and I were. So a few weeks ago, we were actually kind of evaluating everything, kind of looking at our life going, wow, you know what? Everything is really looking pretty good. I'm loving my job. I'm getting more opportunities to write and to speak. Mike was working on a book. Our church is like getting ready to launch a new church plant. We're involved in other church plants around the States and globally. Things are going well. Our kids are doing amazing. Our daughter, we just inherited a new son-in-law who we absolutely love, and he moved her back home. Well, not home, home, but nearby home. Um, Our middle son is finishing up a few years that have been mentally and militarily, academically grueling, and he's at the end, and we are proud of him. Our youngest son, we're like watching, like maturity, like, wow, where did that come from? It is good. And then, boom, in a snap, at a time of celebration, we fall into a pit unexpectedly and it felt like and at times still feels like it is the remotest part of the sea he takes the wings of the dawn we could dwell in the remotest part of the sea where is that where is the remotest part of the sea well if you look it up there's an island called tristan de cuna it's located 1750 miles away from any land source that's 9,240,000 feet away from land or 
you could go to the Marina Trench, which is 36,000 feet deep. And that sounds like, well, maybe that's not near as remote, right? Because that 36,000 is a lot less than 9 million. But you know, if you were to descend 120 feet, nitrogen starts to fill up in your lungs until you feel like you're going to pass out. And if you were to descend to 800 feet, you would be completely crushed and you would still have 35,000 feet yet to fall. No matter how fast you might plummet there, no matter how alone you might feel there, it says here that we cannot flee from his presence. That wherever the deepest part is, he is there with us. Verse 13 in chapter 40, it says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. You'll be tempted to think this, that I'm completely forgotten, and you will ask this question, How long, O Lord? How long do I have to be in this place? How long, God? The psalmist says in verse chapter 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now let me translate that for you in Lori McDaniel paraphrase. This is what I waited patiently means. I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. I waited patiently for the Lord. And we begin to say things like, Well, God is just testing my patience. Or we're patient because we're just waiting for God to fix it. And I think God might be testing our patience, but he's not testing it as we picture him like maybe he's got a stopwatch to see like how far you can make it and when you're going to be done and he's going to click it. He's testing your patience in the pit because you need to know what you are made of. You need to know where is your faith. You need to know what level of commitment do you have to God. Mike and I go scuba diving about once every three or four years. And I remember when I first learned to scuba dive, we went to a pool. It's about five feet deep. You put on equipment. You literally go and sit at the bottom of the pool, and you learn to breathe. And you learn to pick up your little gauge and figure out how much oxygen you have left. You learn to speak language under the water while you're there. I couldn't wait to go to our first scuba diving adventure. I got books, looked up things and what we were going to see, the animals, the critters, the plant life, so I would know what it was when we got down there. So we get on our journey, we get on the boat, and the boat keeps going further and further and further and further and further away from land. And now all of a sudden this boat is like just in the middle of what feels like nowhere, and they're telling us to hurry up, get our equipment on, and step up to the edge of the boat, and there's a problem. I can't see what's in the bottom. And yet... Something had to kick into gear. That what I learned in the shallow, I had to put into practice in the deep. And you know, when I was down there in the deep, learning to breathe under the water, swimming around and seeing things in the depths that I had never seen before. There was one time that we went down, it was night. I know. And we jump in the dark waters with our flashlights And we get down there, and our instructor has everybody turn the flashlight off. So now it's completely pitch black, and he does one thing. He waves his hand in the water like this. And all the plankton that's around, or whatever it was, I don't know, I didn't look it up, it begins to glow. I saw things in the deep that I had read about only in books. But I got to experience it in the deep. 
I will tell you that even in the pit, while you feel forgotten, there is a place of worship. It's a place that you've not seen before. It's a place where you've not experienced God in this way before. And yet he shows up in a brand new way. Here's another thing you'll be tempted to think. You'll be tempted to think, I'm going to die. And God is thinking, no, I'm just transforming you so that when I deliver you, you can truly live. What else happens in the pit? After we confess, we can't cry anymore, and we begin to exercise and flex our faith more than we ever have. This is where it gets exciting, and these next three things are going to like be domino effect. Boom, 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 boom. Because they happen so quickly, and they happen so fast. But you experience God's deliverance intimately. Verse 2 says, He drew me up out of a pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet up on the rock, making my steps secure. Now, I want to ask you one question. In the pit... When we're looking at this text, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He drew me out of the pit. Out of the pit of destruction, set my feet up on a rock, took me out of the miry clay. Who's doing the work of getting out of the pit? Does it say, okay, I waited patiently for the Lord. He didn't show up, so I started clawing my way out. I climbed my way out. I figured out how to get out on my own. Let me tell you how to do it. Who did the work of getting out of the pit? God does the delivering. He's the one that does the work. And here's the thing is often we think of even like our salvation. Okay, I've been saved and that was an eternal salvation. But listen, I've learned and it took me a long time to figure this out. That day by day, God is continually saving me from the sin that condemns me. He delivers me and he saves me. He delivers you and he saves you. And now all of a sudden this pit that we've hated now it becomes this place that we look at as a shaping furnace, as a crucible where God has put things together and shaped us so that he could be used by us. And we intimately now know him as deliverer. Here's the fourth thing that happens in the pit. Your life will no longer be normal. Isn't it when we're in the pit that we think this? Okay, I just wish things could go back to the way they were, Right? so that we could get out of the pain, so that we could get out of the grief, so that we get past the loss, so we get past the guilt, so we get past the shame, we get past the anger, we get past the rejection. We want out. We want things to go back to normal. And yet God says in Psalm 40, verse 3, that he's going to put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. You might come out of the pit, and you might lead with a limp but the capacity of your heart might be enlarged. You might come out of the pit and judge less and give grace and mercy more because you received it in the pit. Your heart might begin to soften and you lose the abrupt anger. You learn to forgive, you learn to love, and you learn to receive love. When Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, they thought they were getting rid of him. Throw him in a pit, make a cover-up story, sell him into slavery, right? That God moves Joseph from the pit to a place of power so that when his brothers come to him, this is what Joseph says to him. You didn't send me here, God sent me here. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God takes the mess and the muck and the blood 
and the guts and the shame and the guilt and the consequences of our sin. And he turns it into something good used for his glory. If we look at Daniel, he was getting thrown in the the lion's den and he's a friend with the king. Okay, and the king didn't want to throw him in the lion's den, but he had to because it was the law that Daniel was disobeying. So even when the king orders Daniel to be thrown in the lion's den, this is what this pagan king says to Daniel. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And then he comes back the next day and he says, Daniel, did your God rescue you? And the king Darius, this pagan king, makes a decree and sends it out to all the land that we will worship this God. Deliverance creates a new normal. Deliverance creates a new song in our heart, a song of praise to our God. Here's the last thing. Number five is you can't keep your mouth shut. When you've been delivered from a pit, when you've experienced the shame, the sin, the consequences, the guilt, the pain, the loss, when you can't cry out anymore, When you begin to flex your muscles, those faith muscles, and you begin to exercise them, and God delivers you out, and he gives you a new song in your mouth, you can't keep your mouth shut. When was the last time that God delivered you in a way you couldn't wait to tell someone? If you had asked me three weeks ago, Lori, tell me the definition of grace and mercy. I would have rattled off something spiritual and something quite brilliant, I'm sure. But if you came up to me today and you said, Lori, define for me grace and mercy, I would have to say, let's sit down. Let me tell you a story. You see, your life, when God saved you from an eternal hell, when God saves you in the pit of your own problems and despair and sin, you were appointed to be a story that really gets flipped. It gets crafted into his workmanship that it involves you, but it declares him. What happens in the pit should not stay in the pit. Why the pit? Why? Look at verse 3. So he gives me a new song. He puts it in my mouth. And what does it say at the very end of verse 3? Why? So many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Why the pit? Why the pain? So many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I believe. And I'm. I'm even a little bit terrified to even say it because it sounds incredibly bold. I say it fearfully. I say it with a lot of humility. I say it owning it myself. I realize I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I just happen to be married to one and I have opportunity to teach today. So what I say, I say with absolutely no authority whatsoever. And I'm not trying to turn things around, but because of the ripple effect, I began to see happen last week. This is what I think is happening, is that we are beginning to see a movement of God. And you might say, Lori, are you saying that God is calling our church to confession? Yeah, I think I am. Yeah. 
I think I am. It's not about what we could talk about, what we come up with the creative, most cool programs that fill these seats with people, but rather these seats being feel, filled with people who have emptied themselves out in confession before God. Let us be a confessing church. Let us be a praying church. And if we're going to be a confessing people, and if we're going to be a praying people, then let us do it together as the church. I do believe that God is wanting to speak love and liberation in your life but so that many will see and hear and fear and put their trust in him. We're going to have a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask those of you who you know who you are, you, you, we've asked you to commit this time of prayer with us, our prayer partners. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And it's going to feel awkward because, like, you're standing, everybody's looking at what you're wearing at the moment, okay? So go ahead and check them out. But I want you to know where they are. And here's why. Because we're going to have a time of praying. And listen, when I say that I think God is calling our church to time of confession, I'm not talking about like the next five minutes, okay? I'm talking about the habit of our heart. I'm talking about the culture of our church. I'm talking about us as believers being the church. Brothers confessing to brothers, sisters confessing to sisters, husbands confessing to wives, wives confessing to husbands, children confessing to your parents, parents confessing to your children. And I believe that if we will position and posture our heart in humility, not subtracting from last Sunday, but the realization of what God is doing globally among us here, period. These people are gonna be here all around. You can look around, you can go pray with them. You might need to grab somebody right here. The first muscle movement you might need to make is moving out of your seat or falling on your knees to the floor. I don't know. I'm not trying to emotionally move you. This is just truth. In Nehemiah, that verse that we read at the beginning, it said, for a quarter of the day, the people stood and listened to Ezra read. The scriptures also says this. For a quarter of the day, the people stood as Ezra read God's word to them. And another quarter of the day, they spent in confession and in worship. How awesome is that? Let us be as the psalm says in chapter 40. Oh, Lord, we have spoken of your deliverance in the great congregation. We have not restrained our lips. We have not hidden your deliverance within our hearts, your steadfast love and your salvation. We have not concealed your faithfulness and love in the congregation, but we have declared it. Multiply. You have multiplied, oh God. Your wondrous works and your thoughts for us, they're too numerous than we can count. They are more than we could possibly proclaim. God, right now, I know my own brokenness. And so there is a great possibility that this message was your message for me. But I believe with all my heart, as I've already seen you begin to move within our body, the church, God, you're doing a mighty work. So God, I pray and I ask you to continually convict. God, let us be broken people and let us be broken together. God, let us be a church that declares your 
чтобы